This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to the program. We're in the middle of talking about ethics. In this regard, who do you think said, non-violence leads to the highest ethics, which is the goal of all evolution? Until we stop harming all other living beings, we're still savages. It sounds like something the Dalai Lama might have, might have said, doesn't it? But actually it wasn't His Holiness, it was Thomas Edison, the man who invented the light bulb, the movie camera, and at one time held 1,093 patents on various inventions. Still, if I had to choose between the views of Edison and His Holiness, I would undoubtedly go with His, His Holiness because Edison also had a hand in devising the electric chair and ele- electrocuted dogs to prove that direct current was better at killing than alternating current. So maybe he still had a bit, bit of savage in him for all his rhetoric. And our discussion is on a level removed from the non-harm Edison was talking about. The ethics we started discussing last week is the perfection of ethics, and that's a state of mind so far from harm that it is impossible for someone with it to harm any living being, never mind electrocuting dogs. The perfection of ethics is based on the mind of bodhicitta, the wish to attain enlightenment to benefit all beings in whatever way possible. Those who listened to the program last week may remember we talked about how ethics is the basis of all Buddhist striving. It underpins the one-pointed concentration we need to generate the special insight that leads to nirvana, the state of peace. Without ethics, we might as well not start on a Buddhist path to enlightenment, for we will never reach the end of it. In fact, our lack of ethics will lead us in the opposite direction. If we ask what we mean by ethics, it's not a list of thou shalt nots or rules laid down by the Buddha. Of course, the Buddha gave his monks certain vows to follow, but each one was based on a behavior that led to someone's unhappiness or discomfort. For instance, one of the monks' vows is that under certain circumstances, monks are not allowed to bathe more than once every half month. This follows from a time when some monks were soaking in a hot spring when the king of the nearby city came to bathe. Out of respect, the king waited for the monks to leave the water, but by the time they did and the king himself had bathed, it was nightfall. That meant the gates of the city were locked and the king had to spend the night outside the city. When the Buddha heard about this, he chastised the monks and made the rule that monks were not allowed to bathe more than twice every month. Later the rule was relaxed because, of course, there are certain disadvantages to not washing for two weeks at a time. We can see, though, that the Buddha didn't just create edicts for the Sangha. In fact, in the early stages of forming his Sangha, there were no rules as such. Only as incidents like the bathing one came up were the rules made, primarily so that monks did not offend or cause discomfort to others. Ethics is the practice of non-harm, or to follow the words of Thomas Edison, not behaving like a savage. In Buddhism, this means not causing harm to any sentient being, oneself included. Sentient beings are essentially beings with mind, though this refers specifically to a deluded mind, not to the mind of a Buddha, for instance. That is pure, and so quite different from an ordinary person's mind, and so falls outside the definition of sentient being in the Buddhist doctrine. The basis of both monks' and lay people's ethics is avoidance of the ten non-virtues, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, slander, 
harsh words, gossip, wrong views, harmful thoughts to others, and covetousness. Three of body, four of speech, and three of mind. Then on top of those ten, we can take the five or eight precepts, all the vows of the novice and fully ordained monks and nuns. And people who follow the Mahayana then have the Bodhisattva vows and those following the Vajrayana, the Tantric vows. So we can see that all in all the Buddha's teachings, ethics is very important. We ended the last program going through the second of the three types of ethics mentioned in the Mahayana pursuit of the perfection of ethics. The first type is the ethics of restraint, meaning keeping vows, precepts and so on. The second is the ethics of gathering virtuous dharmas, or in other words, making sure we do virtuous deeds. And the third type is the ethics of benefiting beings. We ran out of time listing the 11 ways in which to benefit beings. We only got to number four. If you were with us in that program, do you remember what those four were? The first was helping those who suffer physically or mentally. The second, helping those who are ignorant of the causes for happiness and how to create them, and the causes for suffering and how to avoid them. Then the third is being willing to assist those in need of help, and the fourth is protecting those in danger. But now, before we go on to the rest of the eleven, let's take time out to set our motivation for participating in the program today. As we're dealing with the mind of bodhicitta, the wish to attain enlightenment to help all beings, be free from suffering, let's set that as our motivation. But if you really can't, at least think that this program will help you attain your own liberation and eventual enlightenment. Thank you. Now onto the fifth way we can help others. It mainly concerns people who are particularly suffering mentally with problems like depression, loneliness and so on. And we can do whatever possible to cheer them up and make their lives easier. When someone is in a deep depression, of course, it's often very difficult to do much more than get them professional help. But with people open to Buddhist ideas, we can talk about impermanence, karma and the uncertainty of cyclic existence. As much as we want to experience continuing happiness in this type of existence, it's just not possible. Change is the only constant, and we all, are come, acro we all come across good times and bad times. Most of the time, we have little control over what happens to us, but we can modify and control our reactions to it. Of course, the more positive we can make our reactions, the less we will suffer. The more we, can the more we focus on our problems and feel sorry for ourselves, the more misery we will experience. The sixth of the eleven factors is helping those who are very poor, both materially and spiritually. We can give them food, clothing and so on, as well as, as, well as explain the Dharma, so that they don't go on creating the causes for poverty and misery. For instance, people who steal because of their poverty are just creating the causes for more poverty in the future. Helping them with both material objects and dharma explanation may help them to stop stealing and creating those causes. In fact, with a bit of dharma knowledge, they can even begin to create the causes for future happiness. We can also help the homeless by giving them shelter and so on. In New Zealand, there are organizations like the city mission and church communities who are great at helping the homeless though I understand quite a few homeless people choose, choose to be so. 
Once I was helping out at the city mission when homeless people came in for a cup of tea in the morning. One fellow sat at the table drinking his tea and expounding how good it was not to have a house and all the trappings. He said his footloose lifestyle was much better than nine-to-fivers who were tied down with mortgages, children, and so on. And as a monk who is supposed to be homeless, I must say he had a point, although in this country it's not difficult to get shelter and help if you want it. And then, if we are quite skillful at reading people, we could carefully watch what they need according to their weaknesses, inclinations, and aspirations, and help them in which, whichever way is best for them. This can easily fall into one of, those, one of those situations, though, that I talked about at the end of last week, when I said we have to be careful to distinguish between help and interference. It's easy to go rushing in to help someone when the last thing they want is help. I personally find it a real test of patience when people do that, especially when they think they know best and try to take over the situation. I think we should take care to ask if people want help before rushing in. One of my favorite quotes is by Friedrich von Hugel, a hugely influential Roman Catholic theologian who lived between 1857 and 1925. The golden rule, he said, is to help those we love to escape from us and never try to begin to help people or influence them till they ask, but wait for them. I guess you could say that this is to observe closely to see what is needed and then be ready to provide help if and when it's required. The next instruction on helping others is more or less imparting the Dharma. Geshe Lodan, in his book The Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism, says it is helping those on the right path and identifies it as helping those who have a strong aspiration to practice the Dharma. This includes teaching or guiding them and, I guess, providing them with necessities when they go on retreat and so forth. What about those not on the right path? We can help them too, with a bit of advice and guidance if they are open to it. Though Buddhism is, of course, not evangelical, so standing on a street corner yelling out standers from the Dhammapada would hardly count as helping those on the wrong path. I think it particularly means those people who create a lot of negative karma through wrong views, like thinking sacrificing animals would lead to heaven and so on. Or, more commonly in New Zealand, thinking that it's fine to kill, steal, indulge in sexual misconduct and so on. We have a big karmic problem in this country because of all the animals that are killed through farming, hunting, fishing and so on. So whatever we can do to stop people from doing such things will be helpful. Even if it doesn't stop them altogether, your advice might give them enough to think about for them to feel a little uncomfortable about doing such things again. In the last full-time job I had, my boss was really a very nice guy. He was easygoing, friendly and helpful. However, like many New Zealanders, he was a fisherman. He liked nothing better than going out in a boat for a day on the Auckland Harbour with a hook and line. However, he knew that I was a Buddhist, and I told him it was not good karma to kill, that it would come back to him, if not in this life, in a future one. He said he wasn't concerned about other lives and would take his chances. If he was going out fishing, I would say to him, I hope you have a great day, but catch no fish. He'd laugh and didn't take me altogether seriously, and it became a bit of a standing joke between us. 
but I sensed that I had given him something to think about, and maybe one day the advice might ripen into him seeing the fish differently and not creating so much negative karma. Sometimes the best we can do is plant seeds, even though we may not be around when they ripen, and I think that's good enough. The last of the eleven helping hands is not something that will concern most of us. It says that if all else fails, use miracles. Well, I don't know about you, but that's not me. As much as I want to create great light displays with a click of my fingers or do extraordinary feats like Keanu Reeves in the Matrix films, I'm nowhere near that yet. But if you are, then if nothing else helps to show people the power of the Dharma, it is permissible to use your miraculous powers. It's important the note, to note the condition here. Such power should only be used when all other methods fail. Usually, we're told to hide special powers like clairvoyance and so on because they have a great potential to dazzle or confuse people instead of leading them to liberation. So they are a last resort only when we see they will be of greatest benefit. So those are the many ways of practicing the ethics of benefiting living beings. Just to run through them again, they are helping those who suffer, those ignorant of the Dharma and its methods, those in need of help, those in danger, people afflicted with misery, and the poor and the homeless. Then also, helping people according to their wishes, those on the right path, those on the wrong path, and those who need miracles. Of course, it's important to keep a bodhicitta motivation, and in fact, any type of help given with this motivation becomes the ethics of benefiting living beings. Now, as with generosity, the perfection of ethics has to be practiced with the three supreme qualities, or if you can, the six supreme qualities, and with each of the six perfections. Just to remind you, the three supreme qualities are supreme reliance, supreme method, and supreme dedication. Supreme reliance means relying on bodhicitta as our, as our motivation for practicing ethics. Supreme method is seeing that the object, the act, and the holder of ethics all have no independent inherent existence. They are all empty of such existence. And supreme dedication is, of course, dedicating all the virtues that arise from practicing ethics to attaining enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. Add to those supreme object, supreme purpose, and supreme purity, and you have the six supreme qualities. These may be a bit tough, but if you can't practice them all, just go for the first three. Supreme object means that the way you practice ethics is of the highest standard, the best you can do. Then supreme purpose is to practice with a purpose to bring both temporary and ultimate benefit to all sentient beings. Even though your practice may only benefit one being, the purpose is still to benefit all. And practicing with supreme purity means keeping our mind free from delusions and obscurations while we are observing ethics. Often almost against our will, when we do something good, a feeling of pride might arise. Oh, people will think I'm so good doing this. That kind of thought. This is delusion, and so if we see it coming on, it's best to defeat it immediately, perhaps by thinking about the emptiness of oneself, the act and the beneficiary, or by comparing our one little act with the world-shaking deeds of people like Mother Teresa 
His Holiness the Dalai Lama. You probably know many other techniques to counter pride before it takes hold, so we choose the one that is best for our mind. And that is true of any delusion that arises while we are looking after our ethics. Then practicing ethics with the six perfections. If while we are practicing ethics we lead others to do so as well, it's the generosity of ethics. So while taking the five precepts or eight Mahayana precepts for a day and inviting others to join you will be the generosity of ethics. Ethics with ethics means to practice so that our ethics are strengthened to the point where we practice continuously in the future. And practicing with and patience with ethics is being patient with any difficulties that arise while we're practicing. In other words, not getting angry if someone tries to hinder your practice of ethics. So, for instance, if my boss had scorned my avoidance of killing beings and kept on mischievously urging me to go out on the boat with him to catch fish, I would have had to have practiced a lot of patience. I guess I could tell him only half-jokingly that I didn't want to be a fish caught by a hook in my next 500 lives because I'd breached my vows. Enthusiasm with ethics is pretty self-explanatory, I think. It just means we have to stay mindful and practice ethics wholeheartedly and without any laziness. Then concentration with ethics is also pretty obvious. Don't be distracted from the practice and keep your mind tranquil and concentrated. Finally, wisdom with ethics is keeping discriminating wisdom sharp so as to practice ethics skillfully without breaking any, any vows. Also, it refers to keeping in mind that the object, act and subject are all empty of inherent independent existence as we mentioned before. Anyone who can practice ethics with the six supreme qualities and six perfections will be doing pretty well. But for us lesser mortals, it's okay to practice with the three supreme qualities or just to practice with the best motivation we can. When we no longer have any thought to harm others or engage in any non-virtuous thought or deed, even in dreams, we will have attained the perfection of ethics. If we try to do the very best we can in this life, it will be easier to keep pure ethics in future lives. But if we allow our ethics be to become loose in this life, it will be much more difficult to keep ethical restraints in lives to come. At least we can try our best to avoid the ten non-virtues, and if we are ordained, to keep our vows to the best of our ability. Now let's do a little med meditation on developing the mind of non-harm. Please sit comfortably and focus on your breath, Letting the thoughts come and go without being led astray.
consider how we all want happy rebirths and to avoid the suffering realms. The cause for happy rebirths is practicing generosity and keeping ethics, especially avoiding the ten non-virtues, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, slander, harsh words, gossip, wrong views, harmful thoughts to others and covetousness. Without keeping ethics, we will land up in the lower realms and in states of misery. this time we have a precious human rebirth in which we can make progress on the spiritual path. We have all the conditions. If we don't make good use of them now by practicing generosity and ethics, they will be very difficult to get in the future. We must use this opportunity fully. lifestyle in this life will not be we will not harm others and so they will be much less likely to harm us remember the monks that live in the forest amongst many wild animals but are not harmed because they live very peaceful and harmless lives due to their vows if we keep ethics we will bring happiness and peace to others and consequently we will have less to fear and will be able to live a relaxed easy and open life whereas if we harm others we will always have something to fear and be in harm's way ourselves.
basis of all realizations and freeing ourselves from suffering is an ethical lifestyle. All the realizations of the Buddhist path, from the Arhats to the Bodhisattvas and Buddhas, rely on a foundation of ethics. Without ethics, we cannot attain one-pointed concentration, and without such concentration, we cannot develop special insight. Without special insight, we cannot be liberated or enlightened. So ethics is the foundation of all our happiness. Time is up and we have to go, but thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week. Until then, goodbye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.